And so for the last few weeks, we've talked about some of the vices of Christian tradition. We've talked about gluttony. We've talked about anger. Uh, last week, we talked about sloth. And what's been cool these last few weeks is that a lot of people have said, you know, I did not know uh, that's what those vices really were. We're, we're learning something. And uh, so we're at part four now. And if, I, if we haven't fittingly stepped on your toes yet, we've got two more to go. You'll be a part of one of these. Uh, but today's vice that we're going to consider is something I don't think we need a long introduction about. I think we know it when we see it. And it is the vice of greed. Greed. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to be reading from uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians in the New Testament, and I'm going to encourage you to stand as you are able for the reading of our scripture this morning, and there's going to be one line in particular that I'm really going to be focusing on uh, today. So this is what Paul said to this small congregation in Colossae. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And that revealed means, you know, his return. He will reveal. He will appear. And so as a result of that, since we know Christ is coming, Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly. And so some of the vices we've been talking about, these are kind of earthly things, earthly desires. Things like fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and then this one. And greed, parenthesis, which is what? Idolatry. It's the only place in the, in the entire Bible where uh, the writer ups the ante on greed like that. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways that you once followed. When you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices. Some of the things we've been talking about, the practices. You know, the vices are habits. Virtues are habits. They are practices. Uh, Practices and enclose yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator, And in that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, let's talk about greed. Uh, You know, all I really need to say to you, you know what what greed looks like when you've seen it. Uh, All I have to say are words like Enron. Remember that? Or uh, credit default swaps. Remember those? Or Bernie, Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff. Or I could say, uh, think about the character, I think is uh, the Hobbit's name was Smeagol. And J.R.L. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. He comes across the ring of power and he clutches that ring of power. He wanders off with it. Spends all of his time with it. And over time, that ring turns him into this grotesque creature that we know in the story as Gollum. He was consumed by the clutching of that gold ring of power. Greed. And of course, no sermon I have come to understand, no sermon on greed can ever be complete unless I, the preacher, at least quote from that movie in the 1980s, Wall Street, where the main character, Gordon Gecko. I don't know if we have the clip. Do we have the clip? Let's roll the clip. 
that greed, for lack of a better word, greed is good. Yeah. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Yeah, greed. Greed is good. It will save even the USA. And we know greed uh, when we see it. So let me, let me first uh, define the classic definition of greed. I'll give you the classic definition, then we'll just kind of spend the rest of our time breaking it down. I'm doing a lot of diagnostics today. This might get annoying, but we're going to be diagnosing ourselves. All right, so here's the, the classic definition of greed. Greed has been classically understood as, as having the excessive, say that word with me, excessive, the excessive desire for money and the things that money can buy. Greed has been understood to be the excessive desire or attachment to money and the things that money can buy. Now, a lot of us, we will associate greed with uh, hoarding stuff, you know, maybe collecting. you got stuff, closets, can't park the car in the garage. We, that, that may look like greed, and that, that could be greedy. Um, but here's the thing. How do you get all that stuff? you got to buy it. And what do you have to use to buy the stuff? Money. Okay, so money has always been understood as kind of the root. It's uh, the ground zero of the vice of greed. So let's, let's do some diagnosing. I want you to uh, think with me for just a moment. We're all in this together. I want you to think with me for just a moment, the, the week you just had. And I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to first of all think about how often you thought about God and the things of God. Calculate in your own mind. How often, how long did you spend on that? Now I want you to ask you this one. How, all, how often or how long did you think about money last week? How often did you talk about it? Or fight about it? Or have budget meetings about it? How many hours did you devote last week to the acquiring and to the earning of money? When you went to bed last, uh, a few nights last week, did you go to bed thinking about it? How often did you think about you fear you might lose the money? And you put all that together, and it's just a truth that money, the money question just kind of looms over the background of our lives, doesn't it? White noise, but it's there. It looms over the background of our, our lives so much. As a matter of fact, of all the vices we're going to be talking about and have talked about, money is the one thing of all the vices that seems to have no saturation point. And what I mean by that is that like, if, you, if you are a gluttony of the food variety, there comes a point where you cannot eat another bite. If you are someone that's consumed by wrath, you know, anger is exhausting, isn't it? At some point, you'll just fall asleep, and you can't be angry in your sleep, I don't think. But when it comes to money, the desire for it, we never say, I can't, don't give me another penny. I don't want any more. 
It's the one thing that we are desire for. It seems endless, it seems boundless, and it seems completely and totally unending. We often, people have noticed this, that in the Christian faith especially, we often place money in the same space that God should occupy. For instance, we'll say, we'll say things like this about money. Well, you know, you can't live without it. Well, that's what we, we should be saying about God. Or we'll want more and more money, more and more of it. But that's what we should be saying about God. Money determines our decisions. We plan our entire lives around the money. And yet that's what we should be saying about God. What's that expression, cash is? You know what? Cash is king. But that's what we should be saying about Jesus. We're here to say Jesus is king. We often put money in the same place that we put God. I want you to think also about uh, the religious language. You ever thought about this? The religious language, the Christian language that we associate with money? You ever broken this down? This has been fun for me this week. When it comes to money, we'll say things like this, that we need to save our money. Salvation. Or we will redeem our bonds. Redemption. Uh, Let's see, what else did I I put down here? Oh yeah, there's that phrase, uh, backed by the faith and credit of the United States government. Think about that. Money, faith, and credit. Credit, the word credit comes from an old Latin word, credo, which is creed, as in the Apostles' Creed. So, faith and creed. We'll talk about the market itself. We'll call it the invisible hand of the market. Or people will say you've got to follow the will of the market as though the market is this rational being that has omniscience. And omnipotence. We talk to it as a, it's a living thing. Or, I don't think Einstein said this, but I've heard people talk about the miracle of compound interest. Now think about this, seriously. Faith, save, salvation, redemption. Some people will talk about opening a trust for their family. Even the word trust. Miracle. All of this is religious language, is it not? It is. And we associate so many religious parts of our vocabulary, even to the money itself. I mean, we live in a culture now, especially, where we have monetized everything. You and I, we base everything on its monetary value. For instance, complete this sentence. Time is money. Even our time nowadays has been monetized. When we want to make a point in an argument... The last thing we'll say is the bottom line is, right, the bottom line. That's spreadsheet language, you know, the bottom line. We'll go into our attics, and we haven't seen something in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And we'll say, I need to throw this thing away. And then immediately in that moment, we'll either say to ourselves or somebody in the family will inevitably say to us, "Don't, don't, don't throw that away. That thing might be worth something one day. We've monetized even our junk. I mean, it used to be, it used to be, and people said this, that the value of a home used to be that it was a home, a family, a place where the family could rest and be together to love one another. That's not what the value of a home is to us. A value to a home for us is whatever Zillow says it is, 
whatever we think we can sell it for, even though we plan to live there until our death. But what's the value of our home? It's whatever Zillow says uh, it is. And then we come to church on a day like this, and then we hear me talking about money, and then we leave, and we kind of get frustrated, and we say the only thing the church ever wants is our money, even though we never say that about Netflix. Netflix wants your money too. I mean, you put all this together, guys. I mean, think about it. Now we begin to understand why there are so many verses throughout the Old and New Testament that level these warnings about money. Why Paul, in our lesson today, says greed is, what was his word? Idolatry. The reason for this is that money, it's like money has this godlike status for us. It influences our behavior. We do its bidding. What do you think the Lord wants me to do? I don't know how much you got in your account. You know, we do it. It's, it's like this power, and it has this huge power over us. Greed. All right, so I found out this week that uh, greed is very close to gluttony. And this was interesting to me. Maybe this will be news to you as well. That greed and gluttony are very simple, uh, similar to one another because they both want things. But here's the difference between gluttony and greed. You ready to diagnose yourself? Here we go again. Gluttonous people, they like things for the pleasure they produce. Greedy people like things for the value they produce. Did you catch that? Gluttony is you like things for the pleasure, but greed you like things for their value. So if you're greedy, if you've got greed in your soul, all you care about is the value of things. What's the return on the investment going to be? Is this profitable? Will it generate a return? Is this a wise investment? Value, 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 value. That's what greed looks like. And that's what sets it apart from gluttony. And another thing is that I was thinking about this this week. Greed is one of those vices that you and I can make look like our virtue. We can actually make our greed look good and righteous. It's kind of hard to make gluttony look virtuous. It's hard to make anger look virtuous. It's hard to make sloth look virtuous. But, man, we know how to make greed look really, really virtuous. And we have all kinds of ways to justify it. Sometimes, I was thinking about this, what we do is that we will mask our greed under the guise of frugality. We will mask our greed under the guise of frugality. We will clip every coupon there is under the sun so we can save 26 cents. We will go out to eat and we will calculate exactly 15% for that tip. Not a penny more. We will squeeze every blood out of every penny we can and we say, I'm being frugal. I'm just being thrifty. I am trying to be a good steward of God's money. Well, sometimes, but a lot of times, no, we're just trying to hoard more of our cash. And we don't want to part with it. So sometimes even our frugality can kind of ha uh, hide or, or mask our, our greed. Now, there is such a thing as being too careless with money. Like there's being too tight-fisted, but then there's this kind of like, wee. You know, you don't think about anything. You just spend all of it. You don't make plans for it. I mean, that's being careless with your money. So I'm not saying let's be careless and that frugal is a wrong thing. But sometimes 
sometimes our thriftiness can be, I'm not saying it always is, but our thriftiness can actually be greediness by another name. Or we'll say, you know, we'll stockpile a bunch of money and we'll say, I'm, I'm just trying to be responsible for the future. I, I, I'm trying to build some security in my life. Or we'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm stockpiling some money because I, I want to leave a nice inheritance for my children. And see, and John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, would say, why do you want to do that? They're just going to waste it. But we do this. We find all kinds of ways to justify some of our greedy uh, tendencies. I mean, have you ever noticed that if someone comes to you in need of clothing... Or someone is in need of food. Do you ever notice how quick we are to give the clothing? We'll like go back to our house and, and break out the shirts in our closet or we'll empty some of the items in our pantry, get our canned goods here, and we will give them food and we will give them clothing. But as soon as that same person might say to us, Brother, can you spare $10? We say, Nope. And we just keep on walking. You ever notice that? We will tell our best friends our deepest, darkest secrets in life. But how many of us have ever told our best friends what our annual household income is? We won't share that. And the whole point of this is, man, that's power. There's absolute power in the money. Now, one of the dangers of money, and and I've said this before, uh, and here it is again. One of the dangers of money that you see in the scriptures and in the church tradition is, is that if you have money... And if you have enough of it, because what's interesting is that whether you're poor or you're rich, you're both thinking about money. But if you've got money and you have enough of it, it can finance all of your sins. It can bankroll your sins. You need money to finance your vices. Now, you can have money to finance your virtues. I can buy a Bible. I can go on a mission trip. I can send somebody on a mission trip. That could be a virtuous thing, but you actually need money to fund all of your vices. So if you are a glutton, for instance, and you want food or whatever it is, what do you got to have? You've got to have money. And if you're greedy, you have to have money to make more money. And man, when you have money, I, you know, research does indicate that above a certain level, money does not create any more happiness. But what I said a few weeks ago, you may remember this, is that that might be true, but money does create more choices. And if you have money, it creates a lot more choices. And the Bible says, man, if you've got money, you are, you are unleashing a whole host of temptations that people who don't have it don't have to face. And, and so rare are those of us, so rare, the Scriptures teach, are those of us who can actually resist those temptations. I mean, money has the power to make us virtuous, but so often we have to fight the temptation to kind of fund and finance and, and just bankroll all of our sins. And it makes total and perfect sense to me why we so desperately want to hold on to our money. How many of you are, are retired in here? Any, anybody retired? Okay, we got a few people who are retired. I bet you spent 30 years or more working for an income. We invest so much time and energy and brain power trying to acquire an income so we can do some things with it. And the sea, and that is exactly where the power of money begins. And that is exactly where the power of greed begins to emerge. Because when you spend that much time earning it, when you spend that much time planning it, 
you begin to think it is mine. And the Bible is so doggone inconvenient to us. Because the Bible, God says over and over again, everything belongs to me. God says to a man in one of Jesus' parables, calls him a fool. Because this man woke up one day, saw all the money he had, all the stuff he had, said, I'm going to build bigger barns. And I'm going to say to my soul, enjoy your life because it's my stuff. And then God appears to him that night and says, you fool. Tonight you are going to die. Now, all that stuff you've been accumulating, to whom will they belong now? And of course, we know the answer to that. Those things are going to belong to the very people that that rich fool could have shared with in life. And that is ultimately what greed will do. When you have a greed, if it's in you, if you're obsessed by the money, greed can begin to erode and carve away any sense of responsibility you might have towards your neighbor and especially towards your needy neighbors. It can slowly erode that sense of responsibility. Uh, last Sunday, I, I attended a lecture with one of the, just the most brilliant minds in the church. His name is Walter Bruggeman. He came to First Presbyterian Church, Uptown Charlotte. And it was, I wish all of you could have seen this. I wish they would have recorded this. But I remember there was this one part in his lecture, and he talked about the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is the commandment not to do what? Does anybody know? Don't covet. But in the Tenth Commandment, the word neighbor the word neighbor appears more than all the other ones. God says, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Neighbor, 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 he said. And then he made this observation that I had never considered. He said, when you're someone who lives in a culture of greed, or if you yourself struggle with greed, There is no such thing as a neighbor. There are no neighbors in a culture of greed. There are only threats to your wealth. And there are only competitors to your wealth. There are no neighbors. And see, that's what greed will do to you. There are no neighbors. They're just threats. There was a great saint. I'm almost done, I promise. But there was a great saint... This was powerful to me. Many centuries ago, he says, here's how greed begins. Greed first grows in your soul when you begin making excuses having to share some of your wealth. It starts as excuse making. But then he said this, greed has completed its work in your soul when you have contempt for the poor. The moment you begin to hate the needy or to blame the needy or to try to wipe your hands of any responsibility for anybody except yourself, that is the work of greed in your life. It's powerful stuff. Now, we've talked in this sermon series about uh, how every vice has an opposing virtue. You've got a vice, there's a virtue. Now, it doesn't take a PhD, I bet you, to guess what the opposing virtue is to the vice of greed. Anybody want to guess? Generosity. The only thing 
the only thing that has the ability to diminish the grip of money's power over our lives is to let some of it go. That's it. That is the only way you can release its power. You can't have a better attitude. You've got you've to release some of this, and you've got to learn to share without worrying about a return on your investment. Don't worry about that, because if you can give without worrying so much about a return on your investment, you're imitating God. Because God gives without worrying about a return on his investment. Could you imagine if creation was a stock in God's part portfolio, he would have sold the stock a long time ago. Diminishing returns. I mean, we even, we even killed his son. But that's not why God gives. God gives because God gives. It is in God's nature to give. And, and that's what you have to to do to loosen the grip man money is strong over our lives and and here there's a couple less things and here here's what the the council of our tradition also says is that if you're someone dominated and obsessed by the money questions you need to give in such a way that you feel it you need to feel it it's very easy to say, well, here's a couple bucks, and I didn't have to give that to you. But what you're doing is that you're still clutching. You need to feel what you give. You know, the Methodist Church, and this is not the point of my, uh, uh, my sermon, but this is one of the reasons the Methodist Church teaches that the life of generosity begins with what's called a tithe or 10% of every dollar that you earn, letting go of a dime of every dollar you earn. Now, if you're someone... I've been there when the money questions are just all over you and you, you, you just, it's fierce. That sounds outrageous. I told you the first time I heard a sermon on tithing, I got angry. But isn't it interesting that if we were to go to a store and the merchant would say to us, you know what, why don't you just give me 10% of that and you can keep the rest? We'd be like, yeah, I won the lottery. But yet God says, how about giving me 10% you keep 9%? We think we're being robbed. You know? uh, but the point, though, of the tithe is simply this. You feel that. You know, you really do. It is a sacrifice. You do feel that. But it is so critical to carve out a space in our lives where we say to our money, no, you know, no. I, I am not going to let you determine every single decision in my life. I'm going to do this because God really wants me to do this, and I'm going to trust God with this, and it hurts at first. It, you feel that until it begins to feel good. And it can do that. It can actually feel good. It's the only way. All right. So here's the bottom line. Wink, wink. Our relationship to money will become virtuous when we can finally, in the course of our lives, say to Gordon Gecko, you're wrong. Giving not greed, is good. Giving is right. Giving works. Giving will not only save the church, but it even has the power to save our souls. Let us pray. Well, Lord, we now... 
understand why you said you can't serve God in money. That's, money's a huge part in our lives. Everybody in this room right now, we think about it. We plan our lives around it. It is there. Please, oh Lord, help us loosen our worry and our anxiety thinking that we can secure our lives when your word says that only you are our security. Help us live with open hands so that we can give until it feels good through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We hope that you enjoyed it. For more information regarding what's going on at Harrison Church, how you can get involved, or upcoming events, you can visit us online at harrisonchurch.org.